Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello everyone, just a quick note to say that the history of Byzantium is now available on Google Play Music and Spotify. Enjoy. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 182, The Double Agent. Last time, we introduced Michael IV, whose Paphlagonian family took control of the empire after his marriage to the Empress Zoe. Michael and his eunuch brother John then began to search for ways to ensure that they would remain in power. They crowned their nephew Caesar, donated generously to the needy, and invaded Sicily. The attack on the island fell apart when the general George Maniakis fell out with Stephen, the admiral of the fleet, and more importantly, Michael's brother-in-law. With Maniakis gone, the Sicilian Arabs began to counterattack, which the Byzantine garrisons struggled to resist. As the troops prepared to batten down the hatches, they were given orders to leave immediately. Word had just arrived that back home a full-scale Bulgarian rebellion had broken out, one that threatened to overturn all of Basil II's work and nearly killed the emperor in the process. Before we get to these dramatic events, let's go back to the start of Michael's reign in 1034 and lay the groundwork for the uprising. First, we just need to cover developments in the east, because as I mentioned last week, a peace deal was signed with the Fatimids, which allowed the expedition against Sicily to be undertaken. The Romans couldn't afford to send a huge fleet into the Mediterranean unless they knew that the Egyptian caliphate would keep its ships in port. The peace deal had been in the works since Basil's death, but only in 1035 were the Fatimids willing to accept a ten-year truce. Prisoners were exchanged, and the Romans were allowed to send money and materials to Jerusalem. As you may recall, the mad caliph al-Hakim had destroyed the Church of the Holy Sepulchre back in 1009. Though this shut down Aleppo as an active front of conflict, the new Roman acquisition of Edessa was still being contested. 
Remember that George Maniakis had made his name by the daring capture of this city, stealing control of it from nominal Roman allies. The local Arabs made several attempts to reclaim their city. In 1036, a large force blockaded Edessa, but the garrison of Antioch drove them off. And then, more intriguingly, in 1038, 12 Arab chieftains appeared before the gates with gifts for the emperor. Their presents were kept in large chests which the chiefs wanted to leave inside the city. The chests were, of course, filled with soldiers, who were soon discovered and slaughtered. We're told that 11 of the chiefs were executed, and the 12th, minus his nose and ears, was sent home to explain what had happened. Back in Byzantium, conditions were pretty tough for ordinary people during the early years of Michael's reign. You may remember that a plague of locusts swept across Anatolia in the last years of Romanus's reign, and they reappeared in 1035, making it the fourth straight year of poor harvests. That winter had been particularly harsh too. The Danube had frozen, allowing tribes of Pechenegs to cross over and ravage the countryside. It's over here in the Balkans where our story lies, and it is the Pechenegs who were the catalyst for the discontent in Bulgaria. As you know, the Pechenegs were pagan nomads who lived on the steppe lands north of the Danube. For years, the Romans had dealt with them through their outpost in the Crimea, Cherson. The markets there provided the horsemen with all the luxury and practical goods that they couldn't produce themselves, and various chiefs were put on the payroll, giving them honours and cash to dole out to their supporters, keeping everyone happy. But pressure from tribes to the east had pushed many Pechenegs west, and they'd begun to seek their finished goods from the Roman towns on the Danube instead. Between 1032 and 36, for reasons we can't recover, the Pechenegs began crossing the river and raiding Byzantine territory with impunity. This is only briefly mentioned in our sources when, in 1035, one particularly bold group raided all the way to Thessalonica. But modern archaeology has discovered a huge amount of damage done by the nomads during this period. As you know, Byzantine policy was to keep small garrisons spread out across Bulgaria to keep an eye on the population. Sadly, these small outposts were useless against a tribe of steppe riders, and even worse, they became a perfect target. An isolated watchtower was where all the local civilians fled with their treasure, when word came that danger was on its way. I've put up a map on the website showing all the locations where evidence has been found of Pechenegg attacks during this period. At least 15 major sites are on there. It gives you an insight into the problems of reconstructing history that Selos and other historians barely mention these attacks. Because the Pechenegs were not a civilized state, these assaults were not viewed as part of a narrative that would make for a good history book. They were treated more like a natural disaster, unavoidable, random, and not worth discussing at length. Instead, modern scholars have to unearth things to recover what happened. 
and excavations at sites across the region reveal widespread destruction. At Capidava, a pit was found full of dismembered bodies and burnt debris. Coins bearing Michael's image were found amongst the bodies, dating their demise to this period. While further north at Dinogetia, the destruction is all in the suburbs. The trading town's main walls held out against the Pechenegs, but many of the terrified residents buried their most valuable possessions in the ground, the gold and silver coins packed in with their jewellery, again allowing us to date these desperate acts to this moment. Nomad attacks were seemingly too unpredictable and fast-moving to be counted by full Roman armies, but these distressing events did prompt Michael and John into action. The raids cease abruptly in 1036 and don't return for a decade, suggesting that some kind of deal was struck with the chieftains involved. What we see in the physical records is investment in the trading towns whose walls hadn't been breached. Instead of rebuilding the sacked trading posts, they were abandoned and new suburbs were built at the established sites to house the displaced populations. We also see a massive increase in the number of coins found at these towns. Clearly, Michael and John decided to pay more for peace, sending cash stipends to as many Pechenegg chiefs as they could to ensure that they would use the coins to buy Roman goods rather than encourage their men to raid. And these coins would also help pay for the upkeep of the expanded towns and the increase in merchant activity, which was there to ensure that the Pechenegs did not want for any kind of product that they might need. While the Paphlagonians built up the infrastructure along the Danube, they also allowed the watchtowers of the interior to deliberately atrophy. The Pechenegs had done such damage that it seemed sensible to leave the land between the river and the Hemus Mountains as inhospitable as possible. That way, any raiders who crossed into Roman territory would find it much harder to supply themselves as they trekked across the wilderness toward the richer lands south and west. All this upheaval and investment cost money, and it wasn't the only area of the Balkans where the Romans were having to spend it. As you'll recall from the end-of-the-century episodes, the Romans built a series of watchtowers in western Bulgaria to mark the border with the Serbian rulers, who now controlled the Adriatic coast north of Dyrrhachium. I've reposted my map of the Balkans, so you can follow all of this. The relationship between the Romans and the Serbians was one of constant negotiation and antagonism. One lord of Dukia who we know as Vojislav, was arrested around the time of Michael's accession for not keeping up his part of the bargain in whatever the terms of peace with Byzantium were. But he escaped captivity four years later and led a general rebellion against Roman domination. Imperial troops tried to reassert control but were ambushed in the mountain passes and had to make a humiliating retreat. This was not a vital strategic setback, but it would lead to a costly and embarrassing incident for the Paphlagonians. As I mentioned last week, Michael suffered from both epilepsy and dropsy, and we're told that he was always seeking a cure. 
On a couple of occasions, we're told that the Vasilevs spent time at Thessalonica. That was quite unusual, as most emperors never left the capital. And the reason given was that he was hoping that St. Demetrius would heal him. But it's also possible he was there for political reasons, shoring up support for the regime or trying to help administer the changes taking place in the wake of the Pechenegg attacks. Setting up court outside Constantinople required money, and so John ordered tax revenue to be diverted to Thessalonica. A vast number of gold coins were loaded onto a ship, and then disaster struck. The vessel was driven off course and crashed into the shore somewhere in Dukia. Vojislav could not believe his luck. Literally, a boatload of money had just fallen into his lap. Michael wrote personally to the Serb ruler asking him to hand it back, but he refused. In response, the Byzantines formed a coalition demanding soldiers from neighbouring statelets to assist them in attacking Vojislav. They did, but again the invasion was routed when Vojislav's men threw up barricades in the defiles, causing chaos amongst the imperial forces. It was the same dynamic that had played out time and again throughout the Bulgarian wars and was a significant blow to Roman prestige in the area. Between the loss of all that gold and the massive investment along the Danube, John was forced to look elsewhere for tax revenue. He'd already added various surcharges to the land tax and increased the use of tax farming to boost income, but now he looked to the one area of the empire where citizens were not paying tax in gold coin, Bulgaria. When Basil II conquered Bulgaria, he allowed the people to pay their taxes in kind, as they had done under Samuel's rule. This made sense, since food and wine could be handed over to the local strategos, who would distribute it to the army of occupation. But twenty years later, Byzantine forces were much lighter on the ground, and expected to be paid in gold. Now, of course, there were coins in Bulgaria, and some parts of its economy were fairly monetized, but any decision to shift all farmers from payments in kind to cash was going to be fraught. Taxation was becoming a real problem between the government and its people. Remember last episode, the people of Antioch had killed an unpopular tax collector. Three episodes ago, the same thing happened in Naupactos in Greece. And here, in 1040, another tax rebellion was already underway in Nicopolis, also in Greece. We can't say for sure that the Bulgarian uprising was caused by the imposition of a tax in coin, but if John had authorised ruthless tax farmers to implement this policy for him, then there's no doubt that it would be much resented. It's also worth mentioning that Basil II had allowed the native Bulgarian patriarch to remain in office. But when he died in 1037, he was replaced by a Roman, one of the higher clergy serving in the Hagia Sophia. So, with the imposition of full Roman ecclesiastical and financial administration, coming on the back of a series of bad harvests, several Roman military defeats, and news that most of the best troops were off fighting in Sicily, the ground was well prepared for a Bulgarian rebellion to break out, as it did in the summer of 1040. 
Basil II had tried to get the leading nobles of Bulgaria to marry into the Roman aristocracy, and in some cases relocate them to Anatolia. Several of these figures were then caught up in the purges of the past few reigns. You may remember that Pressian, son of the last ruler of Bulgaria, was caught conspiring with Zoe's sister Theodora and exiled to a monastery. Now, another of these men, Deljan, or Delian, escaped from Byzantine custody and made his way north to Belgrade. There, he claimed that he was the grandson of Tsar Samuel and had himself crowned Peter II of Bulgaria. We have no idea if this was true. If he was Samuel's grandson, then it was through Samuel's son's marriage to a Hungarian princess. And given that Belgrade was just over the waters from Hungary, this may have given plausibility to his claims, and the Hungarians may indeed have decided to sponsor his adventure. His choice of name, Peter II, seems to have been a calculated move. Peter I was the Tsar who'd married Romanus Lecapinos's daughter and signed the treaty with Byzantium, which had kept the two realms at peace during the mid-10th century. Peter was associated with the last time that Bulgaria was a peaceful and powerful place. The die was cast and Delshan marched south, announcing his claims to the Bulgarian peasantry throughout the countryside. He publicly executed Roman officials who fell into his hands, and the rebellion picked up steam. He was able to capture both Nis and Skopje, whose garrisons were unable to stop him. One of the problems here for the Romans was that most of the troops that were recruited locally to do garrison duty were native Bulgarians, who would be extremely susceptible to Delshan's message. Speaking of which, the largest Byzantine force in the region was stationed on the coast at Dyrrhachium. The commander led his men out, but was arrested by his subordinates en route. It's difficult to know what happened, but we're told that he was accused of treason and put in chains. Whatever his crimes, this confusion meant that the officers lost control of their men. The army elected one of its own to be their new commander and hailed him as Tsar. So again, we see young Bulgarian men who'd grown up hearing about their ancestors' independence acting on an opportunity to forge their own path. Of course, a second Tsar was no good to Deljan. He arranged a meeting between the two sides where they could find a way forward. Then, with whatever means at his disposal, he persuaded the ex-imperial troops to join him and kill their commander. Deljan now had a significant force at his side and marched straight for Thessalonica. Now, that was alarming enough, but of course the Emperor Michael was currently residing in the city. The ailing Vasilevs fled in a panic back to Constantinople. He left all the imperial baggage a significant amount of costly gear, with a trusted officer named Manuel, who he instructed to follow after him. Manuel was also a descendant of a Bulgarian general, took the emperor's cash, and went over to Deljan. That summer was a complete nightmare for the Paphlagonian regime. 
The ex-garrison of Dyrrhachium were able to return and occupy the city for Delgen. Another force marched into Greece, proclaiming his message, and defeated the forces of the governor of Thebes. And meanwhile, the city of Demetrius was captured, and the aforementioned tax revolt in Nicopolis saw that city too declare for the new Tsar. With Thessalonica about to be besieged, it seemed like Samuel's empire had risen from the flames in only a few short months. Back in Byzantium, several plots against Michael's life also came to light. In typical Byzantine fashion, his rivals tried to take advantage of this national crisis to get hold of the throne. One centred on the future patriarch, Michael Kirularios, and the other was amongst troops in Antioch. Both were snuffed out quickly, but the Paphlagonians were desperately in need of some good news. Enter Alusian. Alusian was another son of the last ruler of Bulgaria, brother to Pressian, who we mentioned earlier. Alusian had been well looked after by Basil and proven himself to be a good commander in Anatolia. He'd been honoured with the highest court titles and had been governor of Theodosiopolis, no token appointment. But Alusian had been dismissed from office and was under house arrest. We're told that John had tried to extort money from him, but it's possible he was simply out of political favour after his brother's fall. Whatever the truth, Alusian escaped from his confinement, disguised himself as a slave, and made his way to Bulgaria. He arrived around September 1040, and was recognised by many in the Tsar's new regime. I should also say that Alusian is the anglicised pronunciation of the Romanized version of his Bulgarian name. Anyway, no one was in any doubt who Alusian was. He was the son of the last man to rule Bulgaria, and therefore a major threat to Delzhan, particularly if Delzhan was not really who he said he was. But even if Delzhan was Samuel's grandson, the two men were natural rivals for the leadership of this new movement. With Alusian being welcomed warmly by the newly assembled court, Delzhan decided to play nice. He gave Alusian a large force and ordered him to capture Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica was a well-defended city. Its walls had withstood an Avar siege back in the 7th century, the subject of one of our Byzantine stories. The fact that Delzhan was not pressing the attack himself suggests he knew that he didn't have the numbers to take it. Perhaps he gave this job to Eleusian, knowing that this failure would discredit him. Eleusian made his way south, built siege engines, and assaulted the walls. Predictably, though, the attack failed. Michael's nephew, Constantine, was in the city and had taken suitable precautions for its defence. Before the rebels had arrived, he dug a large defensive ditch in front of the walls, which hampered their attacks considerably. After six days, Eleusian gave up on attempting to force his way in. He sent his men out to forage and settled in for a simple blockade. Thessalonica, being a great port city, was not greatly threatened by this, but the garrison inside decided to ride out and attack the besiegers anyway. 
This sortie was more successful than they'd intended. After breaking through the line and taking prisoners, the rebels abandoned the siege and fled, suffering more casualties in the process. Alusian returned to the Tsar's court, a diminished figure. The distrust between the two men was palpable, and shortly after his return, Alusian managed to get Deljan good and drunk at a banquet, and then blinded him. He then seized control of the rebellion. Events now began to turn for Byzantium. The locals of Demetrius helped Roman soldiers enter the city and eject the rebel garrison. Meanwhile, the troops from Sicily had returned and began mustering, ready for spring 1041. Much to the displeasure of his advisers, Michael was determined to lead the army in person. This in spite of the terrible pain he was in from his swollen limbs, and the fact that if he had a fit while on his horse, he could tumble to his death. Nevertheless, he was absolutely certain that his presence was needed, and in the end it was a wise decision. The armed forces still gossiping about what had gone wrong in Sicily were cowed by the presence of their ruler and the Varangians. They marched towards Thessalonica and easily drove off the rebel forces that attempted to block their path. Sensing that his brutal execution was only weeks away, Eleusian sent word to the emperor offering to make a deal. Eleusian had lived for the past twenty years in Byzantium. He had a Roman wife and children. He'd only come to Bulgaria because of his political imprisonment. He made it clear that if his old life was restored, he would abandon the rebellion. Michael gladly accepted this offer. Eleusian abandoned camp in the middle of the night, leaving the Bulgarians to wake up to total confusion. Eleusian was received with honour and headed back to Constantinople and his former life. His poor followers fled in panic as a full Byzantine field army advanced towards them. Michael led his army north until they captured Manuil, the man who'd personally betrayed him by stealing the imperial baggage. Manuil and the blind Deljan were then taken back to Constantinople to be paraded in Michael's triumph. Pselos was present for this parade, and says that Michael did not look well, his gloved hands visibly swollen as he shakily led his horse down the messy. Back in Bulgaria, the rebellion collapsed. Byzantine garrisons reoccupied their former positions, and no follow-up to these events is recorded. Despite their various resentments over the Roman occupation, the Bulgarians did not regularly rise up against the empire. On this occasion, they had the leadership necessary to win support and organise resistance, but as time passed, memories of Samuel's state would become too distant to revive so directly. What about Eleusian, then? Attentive listeners will have noted that this episode is titled The Double Agent. Before Eleusian arrived, the rebellion was going swimmingly. Once he was in the picture, he led them to a disastrous defeat, murdered their Tsar, and then abandoned them. Instead of punishing him for his betrayal, the Romans reunited him with his family and put him back on the civil list. 
is it possible that Eleusian was a Byzantine double agent? He was true Bulgarian royalty, after all, everyone knew that. But had he really sold his soul for silk and gold and ruthlessly betrayed his people just to serve his new masters? I don't think so. It's a nice story, and it definitely fits with the picture some like to paint of Byzantium as a duplicitous operator with an effective secret service. But that isn't really the case. Men switched sides regularly during Basil's Bulgarian Wars, and did so again here. This kind of treachery was rarely seen as a permanent mark against you. We've just seen both the Emir of Sicily and various Pechenegg chieftains get rewarded with gold and titles for basically assaulting the empire. It was far cheaper to simply pay a Lucian to go home than it was to pay the army to keep fighting. This whole affair doesn't paint a Lucian in the best light, but he was an ambitious man and clearly felt his house arrest had unfairly cost him his public career. So he used the situation to his advantage, and his gamble paid off. That's it for today. We leave an exhausted and ill Michael triumphant on the throne, and Byzantium largely at peace. Next time, it all goes up in flames. Thankfully not the Empire, this time just the Paphlagonian regime. Michael is not long for this world, and his nephew will not last long on the throne. He will become the first emperor since Justinian II to be dragged from the palace by the people of Constantinople themselves. It's a pretty dramatic tale, and it will be our fourth fundraising episode. Yes, it's been 53 podcasts and almost two years since I asked you to buy an episode of The Narrative to help keep the podcast going. If you're enjoying the show, then please think about supporting it and maintaining the current format. So far, 177 episodes of the show have been free, which I think is pretty good going. The episode will be available for $7, and if you'd like a subscription for a whole year, you can get that for 42 which is unbelievable value because it means you'll get five more bonus episodes in the next 12 months, in addition to the 20 episodes already available in the archives. There's some really entertaining Byzantine stories waiting for you. Go check out what you can get on the website. I'll send an update in a week's time to let you know that the episode is available. And thank you in advance for supporting the show. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM. 
for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.